You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. This morning, we're going to be talking about confidence in Christ, and that's what I've titled my message. We'll be in uh, Philippians 1, verse 18 and on, but the reason uh, I think I'm looking at it in this particular way is that not long ago, someone asked me to give them a particular message to really instruct them how to, how to deal with some of the chaos that's going on in the world right now, something to kind of help them cope or see the world through a different lens because it's really getting weird. And I think, in essence, they, they wanted a, a scripture, a piece of scripture that they could use to navigate through these turbulent times. And I got to thinking, and you know, really, what I came up with, the answer is a lot easier than you might think. The only prerequisite is that you believe what the Bible says. The only prerequisite is that you believe what the Bible says. You see, in Isaiah 55, God says that his word will not come back void, or you can use the word empty, that it will achieve the purpose for which he sent it out. You can believe that. This means that wherever, wherever you're reading in the Bible or studying, God's word will minister to where you are right now in life, wherever. Now, why is that? God says that his word, it it won't leave you unchanged or empty. How could that be? Because God's word is living. In fact, in Hebrew, it says that it's both alive and active. God's word is alive and active. See, there's never and will never be another book like this. There never will be. It's not an inanimate piece of literature written by man. This is the divine word of God. These 66 books are able to give you peace, wisdom, and understanding for whatever you're going through. Why? Why is that? Because God has already been where we're at right now. Do you believe that? God has already been where we are at right now, and he wrote a book to show us how to navigate through exactly where we are right now. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. The answer is right here, 100%. Now, last week, Pastor Rick uh, was working through Philippians. That's what we're taking on as a staff, to go through Philippians. And he got about halfway through. So again, I'll pick up in verse 18, the last half of, uh, last half of verse 18. And if you remember, maybe some of you weren't here, but we did kind of a little explanation on what's going on here. Paul is in a Roman prison. He is uh, waiting to plead his case before Caesar, to make his legal argument before Caesar. And he's kind of a, it's kind of a house arrest situation, but regardless, he has a, a Roman guard chained to him the whole time. And honestly, he does not know if this imprisonment will lead to death. As you know, Caesar, uh, if, if you said something that he did not agree with was in his power to say you're done. And Paul really doesn't know how this thing's gonna turn out. Here's the point I wanna make. Paul is not in control of what's going on. Paul is not in control of his destiny. And from a worldly standpoint, 
this looks like a kind of a grim situation. It's not looking so good. Let me ask you, does that resonate with any of you? It does with me. There's things going on right now that I'm certainly not in control of. I, I don't think anyone is, and it doesn't look so good. That's why I wanna take this piece of scripture and apply it to us, to our life, right now where we're at. The one thing that Paul does I want you to take note of, he's not looking at his situation through the lens of a, a, of a man, not at all. He's looking at his situation through the lens of the Holy Spirit. So again, let me pick up, I'm gonna read uh, verse 18b. It's the, last, it, it's the last sentence in verse 18. I'm gonna pick it up there. There's kind of a weird break there. But let me tell you this. When we're done today, I think you will see how this section of scripture speaks to us where we're at and you will see how to navigate your way through it. So Lord, it's with that in mind that we come before you. And Lord, your, your word never does return empty. So fill us, Lord. We ask to be changed by your word. Lord, personally, I ask, I've been so grieved over the situation in Israel, Lord, that we just lift Israel up in prayer. Lord God, as someone said earlier, protect the people you love. Protect your holy city, Lord God. I pray a wall around them. You would absolutely just knock the foundation out from under Hamas. They are evil, they are of the devil, and in Jesus' name we pray this, amen. So here we go, verse 18b, again, the last sentence in verse 18. This is Paul saying, yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you and again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So there's a bunch there, but I wonder if verse 19, did it prick your ears at all? There's two things in verse 19 that I think are pivotal. Listen to verse 19, I'm gonna isolate it. It says, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So this current situation where Paul brings up, quote, his deliverance, he's not talking about his deliverance from prison. Did you know that? He's not talking about getting out of prison. The word he uses in the Greek for deliverance is soterian. Some of you will recognize that's where you get a word soteriology. It's the study of salvation. Soterian was used sort of as a metaphor or a picture for a Christian standing before God vindicated, vindicated before God at the end of their lives. It's talking about salvation. So basically what Paul is saying that what's going on in his life will be used to sanctify him 
to, to conform him more to the image of Christ. Listen, this is a very favorable position, not just now, but we will all stand before the Lord. So Paul is saying what's going on is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. And some of you know the writings of Paul, it's very familiar in the very next chapter, in chapter two, he'll say, Paul will say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what Paul isn't talking about, there's every day you wake up and go, oh my gosh, am I saved? I've got to do something to be saved. That's not what he's talking about at all. You don't earn your salvation. Once you come to Christ, it is a done deal. It is, I believe in eternal salvation. You are eternally saved. So we know Paul's not talking about that. But as some of you know, some of you know, Paul did use the word salvation and sanctification sometimes interchangeably, but he's making a point with that. We know that when we come to salvation in the Lord, God will let us go through tough things, won't he? I mean, really tough things. Why does he do that? Because it actually grows us. It causes us to trust in the Lord more. I don't really, I mean, you know, when there's plenty of money in the bank and the family's well and everything is great, there's not a lot of spiritual growth, at least in me. I'm riding that thing. I, I, it's not that I don't like it, but there's not a lot of spiritual growth most of the time. But when things are against me or my family, I go to the Lord and there is spiritual maturity and growth that will take place. And that's a good thing. So there's a couple things that Paul's pointing out in verse 19. First is that, that that's working for something very good within him. But secondarily, did you pick this up? It says that the prayers of the Philippian church, they are going to elicit or he will receive help from the Holy Spirit because of the prayers of the Philippian church. And again, if I go to the grammar, that word help, a better translation would be supply. So it's gonna supply him or refill him with the Holy Spirit's power. That's exactly what he's saying here, that their prayers, there's a direct connection between the prayers of his friends in the Philippian church and his filling of the Spirit. This is a divine cause and effect. Don't pass this up. This is what's going on right now. We need to pay attention to this. There's a divine cause and effect between the prayers of the saints, of believers, and the outcome of a situation, you know? And I mean, we for sure know that Paul's not saying, oh, pray that I can receive the Holy Spirit. He's already indwelt by the Spirit. In Romans, he wrote that anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him, meaning God. Paul belongs to God. It's not that he didn't have the Spirit, but you guys know as believers, don't we? Every now and again, we need to have that extra filling that extra power, that confidence that only comes with the Holy Spirit. And it's to get us through some difficult times. And I think, and I gotta speak for myself here, I think that for some of us, we either don't know how powerful prayer is, or we forget and we become too busy trying to figure this thing out in our own strength. Like I'm in this predicament. Well, I got to use my wits. I've got to figure this. I got to do this. Instead of just going to the Lord in prayer, there's nothing wrong with thinking about things, but I'm saying there is that power in prayer that we need to go to first. And 
again, I started out saying that there's a lot of chaos in the world. This should be an eye-opener, at least I hope it's an eye-opener for us that this catastrophic, demonic action that's going on in this world, taking place all around us, there is an answer to that, or we know how to battle that, whether it's in our families, our schools, uh, geopolitically in Israel. I really, I, I wonder this, I wonder this. Are we spending as much time praying about those things as we are talking about them? I wonder, because that hit me right between the running lights. I had to repent. I am not praying enough about these situations. I, I actually texted a, a few people, and some of you were here when I was studying for this. I was so convicted, like, we're talking about this, but am I praying as much as I'm talking? I need to spend more time on my knees than on my soapbox convincing people that my point of view is right. And that's the truth. That's just the truth. I, I, I repent, man. Um, but uh, we see that, I don't know if you can tell this, but I see there's a certain confidence in Paul when he writes this. And it wasn't that he was so confident that he could articulate his legal case in front of Caesar and he's gonna make it all right. He was confident he was confident that the Philippian church would be praying for him and that through that prayer, there would be the fresh indwelling, the fresh filling of the spirit that would be able to meet any challenge, any challenge that could be put before him. That's powerful stuff, guys. That's powerful stuff. Well, let me move on. I know we're running a little late today, but verse 20 says this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what Paul knows. He is gonna appeal his case to Caesar. You know what else he knows? He's gonna present the gospel to Caesar. He knows he is. That, that, that's a no brainer. He will pre be presenting the gospel to Caesar. And so Paul uses this really interesting combination of words. He says, eagerly expect and hope. And when you put those together, at least in the Greek, that's only used twice. Those three words in that combination only used twice in the Bible. It, it presupposes a success. Like Paul was sure, he was sure the filling of the spirit, he was sure that the gospel would be proclaimed. That's a good place to be. He says that he will not or cannot be ashamed of the outcome when he talks to Caesar, even if it results in his death. And he's not messing around, even if it results in his death. See, Paul is declaring here, listen to this. Paul is declaring without fear that his body will be the theater in which Christ's glory will be displayed. He will use his body as the theater to display the glory of Christ. And he, he's not just saying that, he means that. Paul knows something that I hope we all know. So, so listen, please, if you're asleep, wake up for a second, <laughs> just a second. Paul knows something that I hope we all know. Sometimes God will deliver us out of a situation 
Sometimes God will deliver us through a situation. Big, big difference. And you guys know this. Sometimes God will miraculously either make the situation go away or he'll take you out of the situation. But sometimes, every now and again, he'll say, no, I love you enough that I'm gonna let you go through the situation. But guess what? Here's the good news. Either way, God's in control. It's a good place to be. Either way, God's in control. So if he does, if he does, let you go through a fiery trial or something difficult, know this, he will provide everything you need to get through it. There's not one thing he will not provide for you. So stand tough, go through it confidently. See, when you go through a trial, two things happen. It brings God glory and it brings you maturity. God's glory and your maturity, that's a beautiful combination. Now, as we move on a little bit, I want you to contemplate the next verse, verse 21. Some say this is the most well-known verse written by Paul. And I, I think they might be right. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you ever thought about that? Think about that verse. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I think this should be a proverb for the church universal, and I think it should be a goal for everyone that calls himself a Christian. I really do. This verse is so powerful. You know, I think of it like this. Paul's sitting there saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What would a modern-day terrorist do with a dude like Paul? What are you gonna do to him? You hold a gun to his head and you say, renounce Christ, renounce the church, do what I say, it has zero effect. Amen. Well, that's the attitude that that has. If we can get behind that, what's going on in the world or anyone in the world can have zero effect on you. Yes. You know, and, and I'd like to say it's an easy attitude to adopt, but I wanna go into it because I think we should, uh, especially as the world spins out of control. Let's try to apply this to our situation. Um, you know, I, I guess I wanna say first off that I'm not saying that we should wish for death just to pull the ripcord and get out of the situation. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that at all. You know what I am saying? We should recognize what death really is. <laughs> there's, a, there's the lie Satan has given us, death. We have to recognize what death really is. You see, death is not our enemy, but it's a transition into unspeakable joy and fulfillment. Death is the transition into unspeakable joy and fulfillment. I don't wanna get ahead of myself. Before I look at the last half of the verse, let's look at the first half when Paul says, to live is Christ. Okay, Jeff, so what, is, what does that look like? To live is Christ. What does that really look like? What are we shooting at? What's our goal? To live is Christ. I'll say it's gonna look a little bit different for all of us, but there will be many similarities. Let me, let me just give you one. So for Paul, the deepest level of what he's talking about, to live as Christ, to die as gain, to live in Christ, it means that Christ was in him and he was in Christ. Christ was in him and he was in Christ. But what does that mean to be in Christ? I mean, we see it all over the New Testament, don't we? Let's go there to see what it means. When I think about, okay, to be in Christ, to live in Christ, 
I think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Let me ask you this. Do you remember when you came to faith in the Lord? Do you remember what your life looked like before and then after? I'll tell you, there should be, when you think back, there should be some tangible, pragmatic differences in life and your lifestyle that you can trace directly back to, quote, being in Christ. There should be. Myself, I remember my language, the kind of language I used before coming to Christ. It fell away. I didn't concentrate on it. It just fell away. I mean, it got to the point and this was not long after salvation, when I would hear certain swear words or God's name used improperly, I would cringe. I can't explain that because not too long before, I was using those words and thinking nothing of it. There was an internal change. Okay, so granted, that's a little thing. That's a little thing. But I'll tell you, when you combine a bunch of small changes in your life, it equates to a new way of life. It equates to a new way of life. And Paul called that a new creation, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians, that's what it is. If we break it down, and you can come in contact, you can think about that, you can talk to others about that, there's power in that. So what about uh, when it says, uh, you know, Christ is living in someone, because Paul absolutely said that Christ was living in him. What is that? What does that look like? When I think of Christ living in someone, I go to Galatians 2.20. I think it's very replete and specific. It says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Christ is living in you, it means that your old self, your old way of life, some of those old habits, have actually been hung on the cross and crucified with Christ forever. Forever. That's it. They're dead. They're gone. And the fact that if Christ is living in us or living in me, that means that he is dictating my thoughts, my actions, the way I do things, the way I treat people. That's exactly what that is. Therefore, as Paul says in the first half of the verse, to live is Christ. Now, let's look at the back half, to die is gain. Let's wrap our hands around that a little bit. So when Paul says to die is gain, I think we should listen to him. Do you remember Paul was taken to the third heaven by God? He was taken to paradise. Paul was taken to God's home. Paul knew what it was like in no uncertain terms. He saw heavenly things. Paul heard heavenly words. They were so wonderful and so indescribable, if I can use that word, that he was not permitted to speak about them. In 2 Corinthians, we read that. Some translations will say it was illegal. What that means, there was no human language to describe what he saw. So if Paul says to die is gain, believe him. He knows, he absolutely knows. And this vision, as some of you that have looked and studied the Bible for years, you know this vision changed him radically, didn't it? Paul was never the same after that vision. A series of things happened to Paul after he had that vision. But suffice it to say, that view of heaven changed him radically. 
I, I believe it gave him a, a sense of confidence that he could get through anything the world could throw at him. Why? He knew what awaited him. Has no effect. You know what's ahead of you? It is glorious. Do your worst, world. Do your worst. I know where I'm going. I know what awaits me. Changes your life. It, it absolutely changes your life. I think that uh, most of us, and I'm just going to say this, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Most of us have the exact opposite problem. I really believe we don't think of heaven enough, or when we do think of heaven, we think about it improperly both bad places to be. People are afraid or they've been misled by this bogus saying. I remember uh, hearing it, hearing and going, what are you talking about? It says that so-and-so is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Garbage, garbage. Being so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. I think the problem is we're so earthly minded, we're of no heaven or earthly good. I think that's the real problem. I happen to believe if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. You aim at the earth, you get neither. It's a real simple equation. Heaven, you get everything. We should be absolutely thinking and talking about heaven. You know, and as well, I, and maybe you've heard the same thing. I've heard, these are well-meaning Christians, no doubt. They're well-meaning Christians, but they'll say, you know, we shouldn't talk about heaven. We should just think more about Jesus. It sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Until you notice it, it, it contradicts what the Bible says. Then it, it, it doesn't sound so good. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 is a very clear command on how we should be thinking. It says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, we set our minds on heaven because we love Jesus Christ and heaven is where he resides. Did you know that? Heaven is where Jesus resides. See, to yearn for heaven is to yearn for Jesus. If you want Christ, you want heaven because that's where we will be with him. There's a direct connection there. And that's why in Hebrews 11, it says that God's people were longing for a better country. It's exactly what they were doing. They were longing for this better country. And I always like to go to the ultimate reference, the ultimate source, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think right now, John 14, one through three would be very handy. Let me read this to you. Jesus says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. That is indisputable. That is indisputable. Jesus is preparing a place for this, for us. Let me say this. Since Jesus created us, and we know that, Jesus was the one that created us, he knows how to fulfill us better than we know how to fulfill us. He's creating this place that's specifically for us. Can I say that? Specifically for us. This is a place where not just our needs are met, they're far exceeded, they're far exceeded. 
In fact, and I've I've talked about this before, so I, I won't go on and on about it, but our heavenly bodies will be able to experience pleasure in ways our earthly bodies can't. Can I say this? We'll have another set of pleasure receptors in heaven that we know nothing about. We'll have new bodies. It's absolutely true. So imagine this, an existence where 100% of your physical and mental needs are being met 100% of the time. I know that sounds like an equation, but I don't have heavenly language to describe. I gotta use what I got here. But imagine that, because that's what heaven is. I believe the most fulfilling part of the whole deal will be our fellowship with the Lord himself, our fellowship with the Lord. Not only that, but with our friends and loved ones for eternity that have trusted Jesus for their lives. It is just, any way you slice it, it is deluxe, any way you slice it. Now, I will say, I understand that, you know, it's tough to look forward to something you can't comprehend. So again, let me use some real human terms here. If we trust that God never does anything halfway, but he always does everything perfectly, and and he said, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you, it is going to be perfect. That's who God is. Listen to one of my favorite philosophers, apologists, C.S. Lewis. I think C.S. Lewis gets this right. Listen to what he says. I'm going towards the end here, but, but listen to what he says. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others do the same. Yes and amen. I think that the Apostle Paul felt the same way. I, I really do. And that's why he could say with confidence to die is gain. And I hope that we think about this and we'll be able to say that if not today, then sometime very soon that to die is gain. So in our last, our last few verses here, notice this. In verses 22 through 24, it's interesting. Paul really starts talking to himself and he's inviting the Philippian church to listen to this inner deliberation of his heart. Paul's talking to himself, but he knows dang good and well, the Philippian church will be seeing exactly what he is saying and thinking about it. It says this in verse 22 through 24. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And again, I think Paul phrases it in this way to kind of let the Philippians know, hey guys, if it were up to me, he knows God's running the show, but Philippians, if it was up to me, here are my thoughts. And I think he puts it just so well. For Paul, death was this glorious possession of Christ, but life was this glorious bearing of fruit. He was stuck between two wonderful decisions and he knew it, and that, is what generated the confidence. He knew both both options were gonna be fantastic. And again, I'll say this again, because this is the point of my sermon. If we could look at life 
through the lens that Paul is now looking at his life. And remember, it's not roses. He's in jail, gonna see Caesar. He doesn't know. It does not affect him. If we could adopt some of this, it will change our attitude. Trust me on that, it will. See, every day on earth that we have, we can bear fruit for Christ. And I believe store up treasure or rewards in heaven. Every day we have this new opportunity to do that. When you wake up in the morning, do you think like that? Oh my gosh, I've got this opportunity to do this. We should. Now, I'm not saying that all of us every day, you gotta go preach a sermon or lead someone to the Lord. Nothing wrong with those things. You don't have to do that, but you can do small things, small things to bear fruit. Maybe it's giving a few bucks to somebody in the name of the Lord. I think we all have that, that, that that's happened to us. Maybe it's spending time with folks that are just really going through it. Just giving of your time that folks are going through a difficult situation. Give me your time. See, you can always share whatever you have with someone that has less. You can always share whatever you have with someone that has less. Whether that's your knowledge of the word, whether that's your physical resources, that is a good work for the Lord and it bears fruit. See, as much as Paul wanted to be with Jesus in heaven, he wanted it bad. He knew that was perfection. He concluded that it would be more necessary for him to stay in the body and keep ministering to these Philippian saints. And this decision, this decision that he's making right now would be more useful for me to stay no matter what I want. That is modeling what he would teach in chapter two. And some of you know this, the very next chapter, Jesus says this, let each of you look not only, Paul says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's saying it right there. And guys, you know, that's that glorious piece of scripture in Philippians 2, right after he says, let each of you just not look to himself, but to interests of others. He says, your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. You talk about the ultimate example of giving up everything, for someone else, Paul's drawing on that. He's drawing our attention to that. That's one of the keys right here. And it's just personally, I think this is such a much needed message for our church today because listen guys, we're living in a world that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, as, I call it a me first culture. We're living in a world that has a me first culture where self-fulfillment equals entitlement. For instance, if I want something, I'm entitled to it. It's backwards. It's backwards. And Paul's message is saying the exact opposite. Quit looking at yourself. Look at someone else. When your eyes are on someone else, God's eyes are on you. He can take care of you better. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. So in these last two verses, 25 and 26, and then I'm done, obviously, we're gonna see Paul come to the realization that it's more important for him to remain alive and to minister than his desire to be with Jesus. Verse 25 and 26 say this, Con convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Now, I'm not saying Paul has a prophetic or divine word from God in relationship to God didn't say, hey, you're not gonna die, Paul. 
But what I can say is this, Paul's taking into account his apostolic calling and the need for ministry in the Philippian church. And he felt sure there was more life ahead of him. And he was, he was actually right. He knew that the Philippians would receive joy if he could minister to them again. And it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be joy in him, it'd be joy in Jesus through his ministry. See, that's the trick. It wasn't Paul bringing this, he was a receptacle for Christ. And I wanna say that is important for us, for all of us. That's key. We are receptacles or storage bins, if you will, for the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord. That's how we bring joy and peace and wisdom and understanding. It's not us, it's what the Lord has given us. And I'll end with this. We're actually just passing on a divine gift. This joy and peace this is the presence of Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit. This is the most divine, effective gift you can ever give anyone. So what I wanna do right now, if the prayer team would come up, if the prayer team would come up, come up, and as you're making your way, I wanna say a couple of things. So we talked about the world situation and how we have a divine prescription from Paul to go counterculture and, and, and not br bring ourselves hope as well as those around us. Let me ask you this. Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Have you come to salvation? If not, I would like, I'm gonna pray and then I'd like you to come up. I really would. Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? But even more than that, or this applies to more, I should say, do you need that extra filling that Paul was talking about? That is a divine gift and privilege. Maybe you're going through something. You need that divine filling of the spirit. So I don't care what's thrown at you, you're gonna get through it because it's not you, it's the Holy Spirit. And you remember lastly, the power of prayer that Paul talked about, how powerful prayer was. A lot of us, we, we either don't know it or we don't take advantage. Guess what, guys? I'm giving you an opportunity to come up and jump in a place of power and pray for whatever's going on in your life, your family, your loved ones, or the world. So I'm gonna pray and then come on up if you want to. Lord God, we know, we know that your word is true and we know that it will not come back void. Father, I just pray right now that we would take advantage of the power of prayer. Lord God, maybe there's some of us that uh, we, we know it intellectually, but we haven't felt it. Lord God, I pray that those people would come up, engage in prayer, and they would be different from now on, Lord. They would know the power of prayer. And I, I'm gonna thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Blessings, guys. Blessings. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.